0: I was reminded this last week that there is a hole for many of us in our thinking about God. This hole or gap, as I'm calling it, is subtle. It is easy to do. It is common. And it affects the way that we pray. By the way, this isn't the only one we have. That's just one among many. And it affects our understanding of God and our relating to God. And we're going to look at that gap a little bit later in the sermon. We're in a sermon series on prayer as part of a year-long emphasis on prayer. Right now, we're working our way through Jesus' model prayer, what we normally call the Lord's Prayer, phrase by phrase. Two weeks ago, we began where Jesus did by asking and answering the question, who is the God that we pray to? And this is so important. You haven't stopped to think about it because it shapes how you and I think about God, and it also shapes how we pray to God. For example, if you think of God as distant or uninvolved, and I will confess that for a number of years growing up in the church, that's kind of my thought about God. He was there, but he wasn't really that involved. That affects, you know, we're going to pray. If you, if you think he is uninvolved, you're going to pray to God differently than if you think of God as intimately involved in your life. We looked, so what we did two weeks ago is we looked at God's attributes, his character, and his names as God reveals himself in the Bible, and each of these tells us something about God. For example, we looked at names. We see one of God's names in the book of John where Jesus refers to God as his father again and again. The men's Bible study uh, that I'm a part of is going through the book of John. We're just now into chapter 8, and... Over and over again, you see Jesus referring to God as his father. Now, you and I don't recognize how revolutionary Jesus was when he did that and when he told us in his prayer to pray to God as father because we've grown up doing that. We've got 2,000-year history of calling God our father. But it was revolutionary. Last Sunday, we looked at the second phrase, hallowed be your name that word hallow isn't a word that we use except when we quote the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. But to hallow is a way of asking God that he would hallow his name or that God would act so that God and his name is treated with respect, treated as holy, and treated with high regard. And the prayer isn't just for us or just for me, but it's for everyone to treat God that way. And Dan shared three results that come from answering this request. Now, just one other thought before I talk about those three results. Because God is above all of his creation and because God is perfect, he deserves to be praised and he deserves our worship. But Dan said, as we are praying this and as God is answering it, there are three results that he mentioned that will come. First is that we will live in a healthy fear of God. Now, this fear of God is a mix of amazement and reverence and fear and delight. And only with God do you see all of those pieces coming together. Let's look at one of these for just a minute. When was the last time you were amazed at God, at who God is and what He does? Actually, I think most of us were honest, it's probably been a little while. Do you want to be amazed? I'll offer you a dangerous suggestion. Pray two things. First, pray and ask that God would show you his patience in his dealings with you. And then, secondly, ask God to show you your own selfishness. That's the dangerous part. Okay? Now, the, the result here isn't the goal, isn't for you and I to be more selfish. It's just for God to show us already what we're like and then to show us all of the goodness and the patience and the kindness that he shows us every day, regularly, constantly. And as that happens, you and I will be amazed at how good God is. So, the three results. First one, live in a healthy fear of God. Secondly, that another result is we're going to hate our sin, and at the same time, we're going to see our need for God to work in our lives, and we're going to see that our need is constant. Not just occasional. And then, thirdly, the result is we're going to worship and uh, and praise God. We're going to adore Him and delight in Him. Well, today, we're looking at the third phrase. And if you're wondering, why are we going so slow? Oh, this is not slow. We're just kind of touching on each of these topics. There are chapters of books and entire books on each of these little pieces. As you dig deep, deep into the Bible, you're going to find it's really rich. each of these parts of this prayer. But today we're going to look at the third phrase and we're going to read together the first half of Jesus' model prayer. So remain seated and let's read from the screen, Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. Let's read together. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. we're just reading what's there. Now, the third phrase has two parts, and we're going to look at the first part, the request that God's kingdom would come. Now, there aren't too many countries today that still have a king, and any that do, very, very few, if any, still operate as countries with kings did years and years ago. But you probably studied them in school. Let's think about how a kingdom works. A kingdom has three parts. It's got a king or a queen, the ruler. It's got territory. Go ahead and put up the slide. And subjects. I'll just talk about that word subjects for a second. This is not subjects as in academic subjects. But when you have a king and a kingdom, the subjects are the people. So, in God's kingdom, God is the king. He is the king above all other kings, He's above all other rulers anywhere in the world and across all time. God's territory is the entire universe all of creation everything is under him and God's subjects are all of humanity and the angels okay and the word is kind of self i don't know you want to say it's circular we're subjects because we are subject a person is a subject of a king because he is subject to the king that is he is ruled by he or she is ruled by the king and the king has authority God, as our king, is the king above all other kings, he has the authority to rule us. That is, he has the authority to tell us how to live and to require our obedience. You and I struggle with this, one, because we're human, but two, because we're American and we like to think of ourselves as free and independent. But we are God's subjects. And this means that every human being owes God allegiance, obedience, obedience, and loyalty, whether they acknowledge him as king or not. Now, in the time of kings, when a new king came to power, those under the king would come and swear their allegiance and obedience and loyalty to the king. A little while back, I was watching part of a drama series based on the life of Queen Elizabeth II, and I don't know if it really happened this way or if they just put it in for the extra dramatic effect. But in this one particular episode, Elizabeth's husband was shown struggling with the requirement for him to swear allegiance and obedience and loyalty to her, his wife, because she's gonna be crowned the queen. Well, all of us are God's subjects, and it's not fiction that we struggle with our loyalty and our obedience to God. It is true, we do. Okay, because none of us are loyal or obedient to God on our own. In fact, in the Bible, we see that God allows another kingdom beside his own, but only for a time. In Colossians 1, verse 13, we read this, he referring to God. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So there you see the two domain of darkness. For his own purposes, God allows Satan a kingdom for a time here on earth. But he promises that Satan will be punished by God for eternity for his rebellion against God. And the other kingdom? The kingdom of God's Son. That kingdom began in part when Jesus came to earth for the first time. His kingdom will come in its fullness when Jesus comes again the second time. Let's talk a little bit more about being subjects. We all start in the kingdom of darkness, as it were, as rebels against God. Okay, But we're subjects of God, his subjects, which means we are rebellious subjects. And rebellious subjects should be punished if the king is acting justly. And God is perfect and he never distorts justice. So here we are, rebels, and we can do nothing to improve our situation. Well, here's another example of amazement. That God, the king, that we have offended and disobeyed, chose to do all that is needed to reconcile us to him, to pay our debt. He satisfied justice, I think as as Bruce was quoting or said, at a terrible cost, great cost to himself. And we celebrate that gift today when we participate in communion. Now, As human beings, when we're faced with a situation, especially one we don't like, we're always looking for options, right? So what kind of options have people come up with besides acknowledging God as king? Well, one is fate, otherwise known as chance. And in our culture, Western uh, culture here in the United States and Western Europe, evolution is the word that goes with chance that that's how we came, that's how life came. Well, a few years ago, I heard one of the major supporters read, actually, talk about chance and what it means. And he said, evolution, the idea of evolution is that all this matter was here and it was just an accidental coming together of the things needed to create the first spark of life. And there was this other long chain of, of chance occurrences that brought us to where we are today. Now, you look at the odds for all that, and it is huge. I heard one, some somebody one time say, well, think of it like this. Uh, think of the state of Texas. It's big. I remember as a teenager, I, I lived in the Rio Grande Valley, so the very south, and we were driving to Oklahoma and through uh, Fort Worth, so that's not even the longest distance across it took us more than a day to drive it. And this person said, "Imagine the state of Texas filled I think it was two feet deep with silver dollars. the whole thing. And you just kind of wander through and at random reach down and pull one up that has supposed the special one. What are the odds of you picking up that one out of the whole state full?" He says, "That's the odds." of all of these chance occurrences basically giving us life as we see it today. But this proponent who teaches it and says, this is this, this is truth for you people, this is how life came, but he talked about one of the consequences, and it was purposelessness. He says, there is no God, there is no designer, there is no design. It all happened by chance, by accident. And the result of that is there's no purpose for us at all. And that purposeless leads to despair because we were made by God to want a purpose. So one option that people have come up with is chance. Other people turn to superstition or man-made religions. Let's talk about that hole in our thinking that I mentioned before that is so common and so subtle. The hole in our thinking has to do with our thoughts about God's reign as king and about his involvement in our lives, if you put up the slide. You're going to see two arrows. One points to the past, one points to the future. We see clearly in the Bible God working in the past. And I think Christians would agree, without a problem, God reigned in the past. The other one points to the future. And most Christians are confident of God working in the future, usually thinking about, being with God for eternity in heaven. And so God reigns in the future. But notice the present, the now with the question mark. Here's our gap. We often, even though we say God is king, he's in control, he's good and all these things, we often think and act as if God doesn't rule now or that God is disconnected from our lives in some way and we think, okay, I've got to live life on my own, or we have to beg God to step in. We have to beg and plead. We don't. This is where we need to be reminded of what we talked about two weeks ago, who the God is that Jesus tells us to pray to. God created everything that exists, and he did not walk away from his creation. God tells us he sustains his creation. The reason we're alive today and why these chairs are together in this building and everything else is together is because God holds us together. So he sustains his creation. God sustains our lives, but it's more than that. God is intimately involved in our lives as our all-wise, perfect, all-powerful, good God, working to make Christians more like Jesus, and he does that. So he works in our thinking, our words, our actions, and our character. But we constantly go back and put the question mark right there. Is God really here? Does he care? Is he active? As we, Especially uh, as we look at our world and the brokenness in it and the mess that we see, we're thinking, what's going on? I realize so often when I question God like that, what I'm really saying is, God, I want to be more comfortable. Okay, so get with the program here. I want to be more comfortable. And God says, I didn't, I'm not working here for your comfort. Now, he gives us a lot of good gifts, and he lets us enjoy much. But his program is to change us and to make us like Jesus. Let's look at part two of the request of the phrase, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will can be confusing I mean, to talk about it because you hear it described in different terms, using different words, and often using unfamiliar theological terms. I want to talk about God's will today using, uh, looking at two aspects, and I want to use the terms that we see in Deuteronomy 29.29, if you'll put that up. There we read, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. So you see the two parts of God's will, the secret things and the things that are revealed. The secret things refer to God's plans. And here's some key thoughts in this next slide about God's plans, and we get this from Scripture. First, God is sovereign. He is in control. He is all powerful. God's secret will is always done. Another way of saying that is what God plans always happens. God is constantly active. He's working directly and working indirectly through people and events. As we saw two weeks ago, there is no evil in God, no darkness. But God allows and uses evil for his purposes. Now, these things here about God's will, his secret will, are very comforting when you believe that God is good and perfect, all-wise and all-powerful. You and I are reminded every day that we are not those things. We make mistakes. There is so much we don't know. There is so much that we do not control. We know that we're selfish and sinful. So it it is is a very comforting thing to recognize and to remind yourself that that if this is true, and it is, then there's hope. But if you and I and other people are saying, hey, I want, I'm the one who's going to be in charge of my life, then this is a threat. So no wonder there's a reaction to it. The second part. So the first part are the secret things. The second part are the things that are revealed. And they refer to God's commands that he gives us in the Bible. And notice in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he tells us the purpose of the revealed things. That we would obey God. So, there's a lot of commands that God gives us. But let me give you this summary. Four points. First, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others as yourself. Jesus gave this summary and says that it summarizes all of the Old Testament law. Everywhere through the Old Testament. And then I chose two from the New Testament. First, be witnesses of Jesus. And there's two parts to this. We normally think of it as in the first part, which is telling others about Jesus. But the second part is so important show Jesus' character to others by the way you live. Show Jesus' character. That's a way of witnessing. Show Jesus' character to others by the way you live. And then the fourth, work to make followers of Jesus, what Jesus called in the Great Commission, making disciples. So here's a summary of God's commands with these four things. As people and cultures conform more and more to God's commands, they flourish. None, we don't do it perfectly. Nobody does. But the more we do conform, the more we flourish. And as people and cultures turn away from God's commands, brokenness and sin and selfishness and all the accompanying misery increases. And misery has been increasing in the United States for many years because we have been turning away from God and his commands. Now, there's two what I'm going to call seeming contradictions related to God's will that I want to talk about briefly. I call them seeming contradictions because they might look like contradictions, but they're not. The first one, God's sovereignty and man's ability to choose. God makes it clear in the Bible, He is sovereign, He is in total control of all things. But God has also given man the ability to choose. And he tells us he's going to hold us responsible for our choices. Most people pit these two together as if it's a fight. And when this happens, usually man's ability comes out on top, his ability to choose. If that was true, if I think about it logically, then you and I could mess up God's plans. And he's just busy all the time because he's playing catch up and clean up. We can't explain how the two go together, but this is what you see in the Bible that they do go together and it is also very clear that our choosing cannot interfere with man, with God's sovereign plans. In fact, in a way that we can't understand God's sovereign plans, God's sovereign plans include our free choices. Two weeks ago I talked about a prayer from Acts chapter four that the early Christians prayed and it's where they're praying and in their prayers, they're mentioning that Pilate. And the Jewish religious leaders and the others conspired to crucify Jesus, which they did. It's very clear, in, uh, already in the book of John, in the men's Bible study, there's indications that, that the religious leaders and others want to kill Jesus. We're told, as we look at the account for Pilate, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. But he chose to condemn him to death because it was most convenient for Pilate. And what Pilate thought would be best for Pilate. They freely chose. Yet in the same breath in the prayer, the Christians are saying, God, they conspired to crucify Jesus, and that was according to your plan. God's sovereignty and our ability to choose go together. The second seeming contradiction. God has his will and his plan. He is sovereign. God also directs us to pray and to ask of him. And if you think about it, it is true that some of the things we pray for do not fit with God's plans. In fact, in the book of James, James chapter 4, James is talking to Christians and, and, and to paraphrase, he says, you want to know why God says no to your, your, your prayer? Because you're being selfish. Well, remember this. God tells us to come to him as little children. And little children ask for whatever crosses their mind. That is why when I had little kid, uh, my my children in the car, I hated driving past McDonald's. All it took was one little you know glimpse of those golden arches. Daddy, I'm hungry. I need French fries or whatever it was. That's what children do. Whatever they see, whatever crosses their mind, whoop! There it is. I want it. I got to have it. And and then they start working you for it, right? Okay, well, God tells us to come to him as little children. Now, there's a whole other talk about that. But God doesn't leave Christians as little children. As you and I grow in our relationship with God, our prayers are shaped by that relationship and also more and more by what we read in the Bible. Let's look at what Jesus says in John 15, verse 7. He's talking about prayer here. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It's talking about praying. And it will be done for you. But notice the conditions. He says, if you abide in me. And there he's talking about our relationship. If we're trusting him. If we're talking with him. If we are in relationship with him. And then he says, and if my words abide in you. So that as we're reading the Bible, a little bit like what uh, Barry was talking about, it could be with songs, it could be with verses that not only just kind of happens sometimes, but you work to make it happen so that you're thinking about the verses that you, you know, the, the scripture that you read. You're reading regularly and saying, okay, God, what does this mean? What does it tell me about you? What does it tell me about us as human beings? What does it tell, us, tell me about the world that we live in and the life you've, you've given us and you call us to live? Those kinds of things work in us, and so amazingly, God has chosen to involve us in His plans through our prayers. Let me give you one example. Over the years, I have heard several true accounts of people feeling the urge to pray for somebody else. It just sometimes it's the middle of the night, sometimes the middle of the day, whatever it is. Oh, and you think of a relative, a friend, a neighbor. A missionary somebody and all of a sudden you you know what I just need to pray for them and often a few weeks months later sometimes even years later you find out oh the person shares this is what was going on in my life this was the problem this was the emergency that I had and you realize God prompted you to pray for them and God answered that prayer Well, this leads us to the last, very last part of the phrase where we're praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done perfectly in heaven. So when you and I pray to God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're asking that God would be obeyed more and more here on earth. Let me finish with this thought. Prayer for God's kingdom to come is prayer that God's kingdom would grow. That's in part why I was, was thinking when I wrote what those notes for the elders that Bruce shared with. How does God kingdom, God's kingdom grow? Two ways, and we've already had pointers to both of those in the sermon. First, God's kingdoms grow as more people become Christians. We looked at Colossians 1.13. And I like to think of that uh, where I saw it. God is snatching people out of the kingdom of darkness and moving them to the kingdom of his son. When God snatches people, it's not like you see snatching in the movies. When he snatches, he's bringing life. He puts his spirit in us. All of a sudden, we can see the world correctly, the way God sees things. And we see God and we turn to God. So one is people becoming Christians, but the second is Christians growing spiritually. We talked from John 15, 7 about growing in our relationship with God. As we grow and have a deeper relationship with God, we're going to be more dependent on God, we're going to be more obedient, and there's going to be more thanks and praise that comes. So you can be confident that God answers the prayer when we say, God, praying that your kingdom would come, that it would grow, and that your will would be done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for teaching us and directing us to pray in this way. We thank you that you give so... uh, Your word is so rich in helping us to understand and connecting the pieces of this prayer with the rest of your scripture. Lord, we pray that you would give us a desire not only just to pray, but to grow in our relationship with you, that it would be more real to us, that you would be more real, that we would be more honest and transparent with you in our prayers and in our conversations, that we would see the life that you call us to. Jesus calls it in John the abundant life, and it is. Lots of challenges and difficulties, but abundance that can't be found anywhere else. So, Lord, would you draw us to you? Would you help us to be praying your prayer and to grow in our relationship with you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.